You don't have to be a rocket scientist to help realize a mission to Mars. Become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc. This podcast is brought to you by Invesco QQQ. Anyone can become an agent of innovation. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc. So since then, you've become something of the foremost ETF lawyer. <laughs> I don't know about that, but I do, I do work a lot in the ETF space. Uh, of, of all the ETFs out there, right, there's 2,100. Just give us a ballpark. How many do you think you helped sort of birth through the legal process to make it to market? A number and then an asset weighting, Oh, if you I can. have no idea. Um, <laughs> for instance, I helped the first iShares, and there were 40 of them. When we first did the iShares, okay, so that's about four hundred billion. But I didn't represent Spies two fifty. Spy. We're already about eighteen twenty percent of the whole industry. What Mid- else? Midcap spider diamonds, diamond okay. gold, all the all the precious GLD. metals. Yeah, GLD, Pro shares. Pro. Um, we're about forty percent already. <laughs> Can we hit fifty? <laughs> Let me think. Who? Uh, I'm, I'm sure I'm overlooking market a bunch vectors. Of uh, any Schwab? No, no Vanguard. Sh- Vanguard. Oh Jesus! Okay, now we're at eighty. <laughs> This is Trillions Presents, the ETF story. I'm Joel Weber, editor of Bloomberg Businessweek. In the early 2000s, after Webbs becomes part of iShares and it really begins to take off, innovation in the ETF space is inevitable. And as you just heard from Kathleen Moriarty, she ushered in many of these innovations in the form of new ETFs, which are still relevant today. Dave Nodig, longtime managing director at ETF.com, says that in terms of ETF history, SPY, definite innovation. Webs, really more of a mainstreaming of an existing innovation. LQD, I think a genuine innovation which pries open the door. Bruce Levine is a senior strategy advisor to Astoria Advisors, but he was running product development at iShares when it first launched fixed income ETFs, including what is considered to sort of be the SPY of fixed income. LQD, the first corporate bond ETF. The bond market, of course, is a whole another thing because it's an intransparent market where you don't have that ability to just, you know, put in a ticker and get a quote on a bond. He said this also took a while to get the SEC on board with the product. But once we got the SEC comfortable that not only was it going to work, but we were actually going to provide a benefit to the market by creating a security that was a reference point for where these these things should trade. I think they, they like that idea, and I think it's been very successful as a result. Levine said, like the SEC, investors were slow to warm. Initially, he says it was only the most sophisticated advisors who liked these fixed-income products. Like everything with ETFs, once people understood what they were getting and they toe-dipped, they never went back. You know, once you've bought and gotten comfortable with uh, something like an LQD, you're not going to try to assemble individual bonds on 50 companies for a small amount of money. You're just never going to do that. Nodig says LQD 
was one of the most significant launches in ETF history. It's not like there was a huge leap of faith required from a regulatory standpoint to launch LQD. What was required was that same leap of faith from the dealer community to be the other side of the trade. There was no question that portfolio managers and institutions and advisors would want to buy corporate bonds in a more convenient package because buying corporate bonds was a pain in the ass. So yeah, by all means, there was a ton of demand for it. But getting the dealer community to show up and do creation redemption, the ability to do um, cash in lieu for part of the baskets because some stuff might not trade well enough, all of that stuff was uh, really just a feat on the street you know, ground effort to make that happen. A little bit like trying to get somebody elected who may not be that well known. You had to go out and knock on doors and get these dealers to understand that, yeah, creation redemption was going to work in the bond market. Uh, And that, I think, was what really opened up people's eyes to what ETFs could become. And another significant launch in the early 2000s was Vanguard's first ETF, the Vanguard Index Participation Receipts, or VIPERS. I think it was more psychologically significant and maybe almost spiritually significant than it was from any market's perspective. (laughs) A viper, a poisonous snake. (laughs) This, as you'll recall, is Vanguard founder Jack Bogle. In some ways, Bogle played a significant role in the ETF's creation by giving Nate Most feedback when Most was first dreaming about what would become SPY. SPY was also priced to compete with Vanguard's expense ratio from the very beginning. But know that Bogle has remained an outspoken critic of ETFs ever since. Well, an ETF is just another form of index fund. A sort of bastardized form, for the want of a better word. Bogle says it's hard to pinpoint his reaction to Vipers. It was 18 years ago. But he says he could understand why it happened. So... There we are. Had to, uh, They looked at it. Many looked at it as a way to get into the brokerage business, which I thought was not catastrophic. But, you know, our, our original premise was build a better mousetrap and the world will beat a path to your door. And all of a sudden we were out there hunting mice. <laughs> the word. Uh, and uh, so I, it didn't warm my heart. I I don't re- recall feeling bothered about it. And I even, to be quite blunt about it, said, you know, I'd probably have done it too. I think the real kicker for the Vipers coming online was it, it signaled to individual investors and to a growing class of Vanguard-focused advisors that ETFs were okay. And I think that that sort of uh, anointment by somebody as uh, revered as Vanguard really opened the door for a huge rush into these products by core asset allocation advisors, which is really what drove all the growth in the 2000s. Soon after Vipers comes to market, PowerShares launches in 2003. And the PowerShares brand is where we first get the concept of smart beta ETFs in a big way. Bruce Bond who'd previously been the head of marketing at Nuveen, was leading the launch. Bond says he'd seen all kinds of product packaging in the ETF space, and he knew what the problems were for all the different products. And that's when I started to say, okay. At the time, there were no active ETFs. And I I looked at it and I said, well, what is an index? An index is a group of stocks that track something, right? And it doesn't matter what it is. So 
Um, now it has there's certain requirements an index has to have in order to be replicated by an ETF. But at the time, they were all benchmarks, and you know, just static, cap weighted, or you know, dollar weighted, or what you know, however the weighting scheme was. But we looked at it and said, well, why wouldn't we create an index of stocks that are intelligently selected using a quantitative methodology, and we will build an index out of A stocks, A rank stocks, rather than just all stocks, and we'll have it weighted like the market, so it will look like the market from a weighting exposure standpoint, but we'll do that with quality securities rather than just all securities. And that's when the IntelliDex was born, and that's when really intelligent indexing or smart beta, or whatever you want to call it, that was the birth of that whole movement. He says people really hadn't thought creatively about what an index actually was. And he says it was hard getting power shares off the ground. So we had to convince them that an intelligent index, quantitatively derived, was better, you know, like an index with value uh, was better than just a benchmark that floated along out there. And then we had to also convince them, you know, of who PowerShares was and what an ETF is and, and why an ETF, the structure is worth going through all this to get the value through it uh, from a tax standpoint and a cost and efficiency standpoint. Nodig says the PowerShares products are so important because we first started seeing evangelism for smart beta ETFs in the form of Rob Arnott and his ticker, PRF. I think PRF is notable because it brings with it Rob Arnott, even more so than whatever it's doing in the methodology. And Rob Arnott was and remains such an advocate of a smart beta methodology, all right, their Rafi weighting scheme in there, that we've for the first time sort of had our uh, our evangelist, the person you could put on radio or person you could put on television who would sit there and talk about smart beta, whether they were using that phrase or not. Arnott says the term smart beta has been commandeered by the industry to encompass practically anything. So smart beta now spans a whole array of strategies, some of which are smart, some of which are not at all smart, some of which break the link with price and have the structural rebalancing alpha of the original smart beta concepts, and some of them chase fads, chase bubbles, and are the antithesis of smart. But smart beta has grown hand in glove with the ETF community because the ETF community, well, 14 years ago, it was boring. It had a bunch of cap-weighted indices. The only exciting thing in that whole domain was sector funds. All right, well, that's not very interesting. And so once fundamental index was adapted to ETFs, the doors swung wide open for a whole array of strategies. And I applaud the product proliferation that's happened there. Why shouldn't investors have a wide array of choices? So, after we have bonds and smart beta, plus some major growth in the ETF space... GLD is the next logical innovation, although the intellectual property to make it happen required yet another leap of faith and yet another bunch of structural shenanigans. Nautic says the people behind structuring GLD, a.k.a. gold, really did have to reinvent the wheel. The way GLD works from an investor's perspective is, hey, it's just like everything else. You just buy it, you get exposure to gold. Under the hood, it's doing all sorts of stuff no other structure has ever had to do. 
Uh, it had to create a whole way of accounting based on ounces. It was literally a whole new accounting methodology that you could never get away with in a traditional 40-act fund. Uh, they had to come up with a new trust structure in order to make that happen. Uh, they had a, a whole nother gap of creation redemption problems to solve. And much like how LQD gave people access to a very difficult-to-buy security, corporate bonds, Nautic says GLD really opened up gold as an asset class. Prior to that, the only people who really thought about gold as a portfolio asset were either sort of hedge funds that could afford to be, you know, buying certificated gold in large amounts, or they could be afford to be buying directly in the London bullion market, um, central banks, uh, you know, maybe major corporate treasuries that were trying to shelter money. Uh, but but it wasn't something that the average investor thought of as a portfolio asset. If anything, you thought of it as sort of a rainy day collectible that you literally stuck in a safe in the basement. It got to a billion dollars in three days. That's a record, as you know. It's the I call it the Joe DiMaggio hitting streak. Is it streak. still the standing record? Easily. Is it? Okay. You know what number two is? Can you guess? B-O-N-D? Yeah. Yeah, That's yeah. true nerd, nerddom right there. Hardly anybody knows that. I thought uh, MJ might break it, but the no. performance, it was on pace. B-O-N-D to, was like a week or two? Two and a half months. Was it really that that's, long? That's why it's wow. the hitting streak. Bob Toll says that gold really helped demonstrate the vehicle use of the ETF. ETFs are wrappers, right? Cases into which you put something. The case is agnostic. What became wonderful about the case is that we could put anything into it. It could hold gold because you would deposit gold into it and you'd have the shares. It would be a proxy for gold. And then you became silver. And then we did currencies and we did all kinds of things. And part of the reason for it is... By doing all of this, at the end of the game, if a person had $20,000, they could have a real asset allocation model as opposed to exposure to a couple of stocks. And since the realization that these vehicles are so effective in many spaces, ETFs have grown immensely over the past decade. To give you a sense, they were at $600 billion in 2008. And since then, they've grown sixfold to $3.6 trillion. This growth can provide a lot of opportunity for investors, but it can also feel like a lot. Arnott likens it to being overwhelmed with choices at the grocery store. But if you see too much variety, your eyes start to, start to glaze over and you wonder, what the heck am I going to buy? We're in sort of that situation in ETFs today. There are hundreds of smart beta ETFs, and a lot of them aren't smart. <laughs> a lot of them are really pretty dumb ideas. We're looking at a world in which change happens gradually. People don't, en masse, pick up and move from one idea to another. Most of the growth in AUM and mutual funds has actually been on the ETF side, but most of the assets are still on the mutual fund side. Uh, these things change slowly. And just as the dinosaurs uh, in Jurassic Park were uh, big and powerful, they, they eventually got wiped out. The best new ideas will gain traction slowly but surely, and the worst of the old ideas will lose ground slowly but surely, but they'll still be powerful participants in the market in the interim, and that interim will last many years to come. I don't expect this to be a sudden sea change, but I do, do expect the evolution of recent years to continue. ETFs are 
a powerful tool in an investor's toolkit. This podcast is brought to you by Invesco QQQ. What do all the greatest innovations have in common? Agents, people who participate in progress by supporting cutting-edge ideas. Invesco QQQ is a fund that allows you access to innovators of the NASDAQ 100 all-in-one fund. So you don't have to be an inventor to help create what's next to come. Anyone can become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. There are risks when investing in ETFs, including possible loss of money. ETF risks are similar to those of stocks. Investments in the tech sector are subject to greater risk and more volatility than more diversified investments. The NASDAQ 100 Index comprises the 100 largest non-financial companies on the NASDAQ. You can't invest directly into an index. Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit Invesco.com for a prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully before investing. Invesco Distributors, Inc. What could you do if your data was working for you? and not against you. With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. So, where are ETFs headed? Dave Nodig thinks that natural evolution is towards traditional active management, like how companies such as Fidelity or T. Rowe Price have skilled research teams that pick ETFs for other people. I think that's almost inevitable. Now, whether those will be successful products or not, I don't know. I give kudos to the folks like Davis Advisors who've really just come out and said, you know what, traditional active, we pick stocks better than you do. Give us your money. And I admire the chutzpah of that, whether they end up being right or wrong. Uh, I think what we're going to see is more, um, whether we call them AI-based funds, whether we call them smart beta funds, you know, we're seeing more and more of those strategies get launched and get some traction. I think AIEQ launched pretty recently. It got decent assets pretty much out of the gate, a couple hundred million bucks. So there is an appetite for these smarter, smart beta products. Uh, I think we'll eventually abandon this moniker, smart beta. I don't know anybody that actually likes likes that phrase. Uh, so we're going to just start calling these things quant active or quant funds, which is frankly what they've been all along. There are a lot of projections out there, not only about how ETFs will be used, like Nodig just explained, but also projections about how big these things can get. We talked about projections. PwC is like 10 trillion in five years. State Street's 25 trillion by 2025. Yeah, that's that's even more aggressive than mine. <laughs> I, I, I I don't use the term aggressive. I use it less sober. Yeah. <laughs> and then, Fair enough. And then we've heard 30 and 30, which is 30 trillion by 2030. That's global. Those are global. Let's let's go with the global number. We got. Okay. I forget what it is now. Five and a half or six trillion. Where is this headed? Like, how far do you think the ETF can go, where it doesn't again sort of eat up too much? Well, too much is a relative thing. I mean, you know, in the U.S. right now, ETFs own about, what, 6% of market cap, right? So could you double that and still not substantially impact market structure? Yeah. Could you quadruple that? Yeah, right? So the idea that you can go from $5 trillion to $20 trillion doesn't scare me 
in the least, especially when we're talking about some of those assets going into enormously large markets like sovereign bonds and commodities and currencies and gold, right? And not everything is a small cap equity fund, right? Not everything is emerging market local currency debt. So these assets are going to go into very large pools. Uh, and we're also in a market where issuance is growing faster than people talk about. Like, in, you just think about the corporate bond space where everybody worries about the ETFs getting too big. Issuance has doubled in the last nine years, the, the total outstanding debt, right? So the, you know, the ETF portion of that hasn't grown by percentage basis at all. It's just the fact that, that there's just way more corporate debt out there. And so uh, assuming that we don't have some radical global economic downturn that crushes asset values worldwide, $20 trillion seems like a completely reasonable number you know, by 2025. We can't know if that growth will happen. But as my colleague Eric Balchunas points out, Nate Most would most definitely be surprised if he were still alive. I don't think they'd think there'd be $3 trillion. I don't think they'd think there'd be you know, six trillion worldwide. I don't think they'd think there'd be an ETF in Iceland. I don't think they would think there'd be ETFs tracking the things they do. I think some of the things ETFs track would actually worry them, you know, like VIX futures. So I, you know, look, this industry has just exploded. And just like any evolutionary line, those lines run fast and they go into different places. And it's interesting, you know, see, if we don't get Bloom, I can sort of just say what he told me. But, you know, uh, what his, his really great quote was is, we were, we were trying to make a great product, but it turned into a, in an entire industry. Or, more simply, can you imagine a world without the ETF? Any longer? No, probably not. Thanks for listening to the ETF Story. Until next time, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, Bloomberg.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you like to listen. The ETF Story is produced by Jordan Bell, with some production help by Magnus Hendrickson. Francesca Levy is the head of Bloomberg Podcast. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to help realize a mission to Mars. Become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.